We're continuing today in our teaching through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. As we've been finding progressively along the way, these words that Paul wrote down so many centuries ago are still incredibly relevant for us today. For just a little bit of context, because I was gone last week, it's easy to lose the flow of context when we've not been together, so I want to recap just a little bit structurally what Paul has been doing in the book of Ephesians so that we know where we're at. First three chapters, of course, as we have discussed at length, are Paul's way of reminding these Ephesian believers of the great and precious privileges that they have in Christ. Then flowing through that in chapters 4 through 6, this is a little rough but basic, we have the implications of how we are to respond to the privileges that we have together in Christ. And so that's where we find ourselves today in chapter 5. We find ourselves learning about how we too are to avoid sinfulness. And as I said to you as we spent time together in verses 3 through 5 a couple of weeks ago, these verses are not necessarily the cheeriest ones to approach. In other words, as we talk about sinfulness, dark stuff, things that we are not supposed to do, these are often not the most popular of sermons, and frankly, if I'm being honest, they aren't the most cheery things to approach in preaching, and yet they are essential. Paul wrote to a people a couple of thousand years ago that were, by and large, first-generation converts. In other words, these are people that had led very profligate lifestyles. They had led very evil lifestyles. They had done whatever they wanted. They lived in an evil culture that essentially celebrated evil things. But as the light of the gospel shone into the city, people began to see and understand their sinfulness and how rescue came exclusively through Jesus. And Jesus saved a number of people in this evil city. And they began to worship Jesus. And yet, still within them were latent tendencies. Tendencies to go back to old ways of thinking and old ways of living. And to compound the problem, they lived in a culture which was evil. Which, in fact, celebrated evil. And therein, I think we can see how this applies to us today even if we are not first-generation converts to Christianity, most of us here today are not. We understand still our latent tendencies, remaining tendencies to sin. Some time ago, I talked to a Christian in his 70s, someone who should have known better. It was a time when he needed to be confronted with some pretty significant sins in his life. And upon doing so, he looked at me, dead serious, and he said to me, I can tell you every sin I've ever committed. Needless to say, I was a bit shocked. And I knew at that point that continuing the conversation was not going to do any good at all. 
And flippantly, in my mind, I had a retort. I had a response to him. And what I wanted to say to him was, I don't even know how many times I've sinned today. Those of us who walk and step with the Spirit are aware, at least to some degree, of a remaining tendency, latent tendencies to sin. And again, what compounds this, much like it did for these first century first converts, is that we live in a culture which is evil, which is marked by darkness, which frankly and sadly celebrates sin. And we could say that this incites us to more sin. For after all, everyone else is doing it. And as cliched as it may sound, it is hard to swim upstream. The broad path, though it leads to destruction, is often attractive. And perhaps it's most attractive because it seems easiest. The path that leads to the kingdom of heaven, the path of righteousness, is narrow. And it's windy. And it's full of pitfalls. And predators. And if we're being honest, sometimes it doesn't always seem very attractive. If for no other reason that it's so very difficult. Because, again, remaining within us is this tendency towards sin. Though sin's penalty has been removed from the children of God. And and though its power no longer resides over us. We are still attracted to it. And because we live in a culture that celebrates sinfulness and seems to delight in the darkness, it makes it all the harder. And so Paul knew this. And though he wrote to a people which were characterized by faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ alone, they recognized that their justification, their their righteous standing before God came not by their efforts but because of of the righteousness of Jesus. They had good doctrine. And even decades on, as we learn from the writings of John in the book of Revelation, they maintained a hold on good doctrine. Yet, as we have discussed at other times, John says about the Ephesian church in around the 9th or 10th century that, that these people had left their first love, and scholars have debated for ages over what that means, but probably very generally we can say that they had stopped loving God like they should and they had stopped loving each other like they should. Paul warned them about this in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 when he tells them to walk in love and and seemingly now as we look at the context especially where we will find ourselves today to walk in love means many things but it at least means that we will lead holy lives we will we will pursue obedience to God recognizing and fighting our tendencies towards sinfulness, recognizing the tendencies of the world around us to to suck us in, to, to draw us in, when our hearts become numb and our minds become dull and we become weary and tired and the fight against sin seems seems difficult and hard and, and we give in. Paul called these people to faithful living. And so, therefore, we are called to the same today. I grew up in a culture which had a name. That name was fundamentalism. 
they liked that name. They, they wore it proudly. If t-shirt shops were more common back then and home screen printers were more common back then, I'm sure they would have delighted in wearing t-shirts that said that they were fundamentalists. No one would have gotten a tattoo in fundamentalism, so they couldn't have put an ink on their skin. They would have had to have worn it on cotton. But nevertheless, they wore the badge proudly. I learned two things in fundamentalism as I have now kind of moved out of the movement. The first is that God is really holy. He's really big. He's really great. And he deserves our obedience. Even though I've moved beyond that movement, guess what? Those things are true. God is really big. God is really holy. God is really great. And he deserves my obedience at every turn and thought and action. He deserves that. And as we've been learning together in the book of Ephesians, that's why I was rescued in the first place, that I might display his glory. I was saved that I might walk in holy love. As we will learn in a few weeks, Jesus gave himself for the church that he might sanctify her and eventually present her present her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, without blemish. There's a design to our salvation we've been learning in the book of Ephesians. I also learned in fundamentalism that sometimes rules were arbitrary and they were created to keep us from not breaking other rules. Some of the rules that we had to keep in fundamentalism upon reflection were a bit silly. I went to public school my whole life. I don't know if Christian schools do this, I'm, I, don't, I have no idea, but public schools in, in my day did this thing that was called evil by my fundamentalist forebears called square dancing. Right, yeah. We weren't like whatever the current dances are. I'm uh, not culturally aware probably enough to tell you what the latest dance moves are, but, but back then, like in the 80s, um, square dancing was what we did. And we did it in gym class. So we did scooter hockey. We had like a little scooter and a little paddle and a ball. And um, we played basketball and baseball. And eventually we did archery and you know, other cool things I'm sure that they don't do now. You know, I don't know how we didn't kill each other back then. But we also did square dancing in a public school gym. And uh, so my family, my brothers, I have three brothers and myself, we were not allowed to do the square dancing unit. Because dancing of any sort was, was very evil, of course. And so I would sit down in my jeans, because I wasn't allowed to wear shorts to school either. I would sit down in my um, Lee jeans. Back then, remember Lee jeans? Um, I would sit down in my Lee jeans over in the corner of the gym, uh, embarrassed because I was not allowed to do square dancing. Because somehow, as a seven-year-old, square dancing was going to incite lust within me from little Sally Ann over here who was also square dancing with me and it would lead me down the wayward path and I would become profligate and evil. Even then I thought that was silly. We had other rules in our family, rules that upon reflection didn't make a lot of sense, but my, my parents had the right idea in mind, though I didn't always now, of course, upon reflection, agree with their application. 
And, and so that's kind of where a lot of us are still. Even if we don't wear the badge of fundamentalism, we, we often ask ourselves, what are the things that we are allowed to do and what are the things that we're not allowed to do? Because a lot of us grew up at least in, in conservatism. Some things we get right. Some things we get wrong. And upon even more reflection and perhaps more mature and significant reflection, one of the things that I have found in my life is that fundamentalism as a code, because it had a code, often didn't really get to the heart of the issue. It sort of reduced everything to a series of behaviors. As you checked off the boxes, as you did all the right things and didn't do any of the wrong things, you could consider yourself holy and righteous. And basically what you were doing is you were just keeping some code and you were sort of comparing yourself to the people around you. It really wasn't about God's holiness anymore. And so, so a lot of things were left off. Things that as you read Jesus, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, were rarely mentioned. Internal motivations. Things we think about. Ways that we treat each other in private. And I say all this to make this simple point. Until Jesus brings full restoration and rescue these mixed hearts, we are going to live in a consistent state, a continual state of struggle between righteousness and unrighteousness. Codes, lifestyle, decisions are, are important. We don't impose those as a church. Probably as families, you have some, some standards, some things you do and don't do that might not even have a biblical reference. There may not be a, a biblical reference in, in your Bible that you're holding in front of you about certain things that you decide as a family. So I'll give you one for my family. Um, I have a 12-year-old, a soon-to-be 10-year-old, a soon-to-be 8-year-old, and a new 4-year-old. But in the future, my wife and I have already planned, and this could be tweaked at times, so when my kids are like 17 and 18, don't come back and condemn me, but we have a basic plan, and we've already begun talking about this with our older boys, that, that through high school, serious dating is not something that we're going to welcome. I can't turn to a chapter and verse and, and tell you, what Jesus thought about dating, specifically, chapter and verse. But my family has some ideas of what might be good for our kids and what might not be good for our kids. That's a family standard issue. So, so even though sometimes we, we recoil against the old conservatism, you know, which was so focused on what you drank and what you chewed and who you hang out with and where you went, and, and sometimes it went off the rails, like square dancing, at the same time, we, we try as the people of God to, to recognize our tendency towards sinfulness or, or those around us, those over whom we have charge, we recognize their tendency towards sinfulness and we try to protect them. So as my boys grow older, I want them to get married. I think that would be really wonderful for them. I'm too, old to, I'm too young, rather, to want grandchildren at this point, but I want them down the road. I want to enjoy my children as, as older boys. But what I do want to protect them through in their 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 is, is some of my own failures when I was that age. So I will 
create as their father some some guardrails for them to protect them because that's my job. I recognize my own tendencies towards sinfulness and I will recognize theirs when they come. Because I want my boys to, to treasure Jesus most of all. I want to protect their hearts against things which will numb them and and lead them astray. And so as we work through this passage, and I'm going to read it here in just a moment, as we work through this passage, you're, if you're like me, going to be asking yourself some questions. How how do I apply this to my situation as as a follower of Jesus or as one who has charge over others who are following Jesus? And I'm not going to give you all the answers for that. That is not in my purview today. But what we must do today is recognize our tendency towards sinfulness, which, which is still within us, and the culture around us which calls us to, which sucks us into it. And by trust in the Spirit and by the illumination of the Word, seek to bring glory to the God who has rescued us and called us to light. And as we will find from this passage, the way we walk in the light has a distinct impact on the world around us. And that must not be undersold. So let's read together from God's word. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. May God bless to us the reading of his word. It has been said, and I don't know exactly where I heard this, but saints get a new name before they get a new character. In other words, we we are called sons and daughters before we are fully transformed. Saints get a new name before they get a new character. Paul opened up this letter to the church in Ephesus by, by reminding them that they were saints, that they were children because of grace and yet he was not afraid to tell them that their character had to be progressively transforming and and though this is not the cheeriest of sermons perhaps to listen to we have to face that reality that though our identity is son or daughter those of us who have placed our faith exclusively in Jesus our character is still changing it's still being formed In a sense, what Paul is saying here in this section is that Jesus is bringing the light of recreation to all things. And we are participants in that. We are to be children of light. We were formerly children of darkness. We were children of wrath, as we saw in chapter 2. We were also children of darkness. But we have a new identity. We are now children of the light. That That is who we are fundamentally. And yet... Progressively, our character must be transforming so that we are living in light of that and keeping with that. As we learned together, as we studied in Genesis some years ago, if you 
follow the account that Moses puts forth there, before there were even stars, there was light. How can that be? As John says in the beginning of his gospel, Jesus lights up everything that comes into the world. And in fact, as you read at the end of John's writings, at the end of the book of Revelation, one day there will be no need for sun, for the Lamb will be among His people, and He will be the lamp of this new creation. What happened when sin entered the world? Darkness came in. Decreation came in. We'll study this in very small detail in a few moments, but when Jesus came into the world, he called himself the light of the world. Jesus began a process of recreation, of bringing permeating light into the darkness. And he doesn't just do that by giving us the Bible and placing it on a pedestal somewhere so that somewhere there is a source of light. What Jesus does is he rescues sinful people who once lived in the darkness. And like the moon reflects the glory of the sun, he turns us into reflections of his light. And then he puts us together into families, congregations, churches, so that collectively we display or reflect his light. And this is happening all around the world. There are outposts of light in the midst of the darkness all over the world today. And what Paul is saying to us here in this chapter is that he wants more. He wants more people to to see the light. So as we display the light, others see it, and they will choose either to reject it or to come to it. And as more and more people come to it, there is more and more light so that more and more people are aware of it, are exposed to it, or more specifically, exposed to Christ. The moon, in and of itself, does not display light. The moon merely reflects the light of the greater celestial body, and that is like us. We are not inherently light. But as Jesus shines his light into our hearts, we are transformed and we are being transformed so that progressively, whereas at one time we were participants in the darkness, we are now displaying the light to all around us. We saw it together in verses 3 through 5 last time we were together that as those made new in Christ, we must first of all strongly resist sinful cravings of the body and heart because they still reside within us. Secondly, we saw in verse 4 that we must be on constant guard against sins of the tongue. As we briefly discussed a couple of weeks ago, you might be able to bridle the whole body, but it's hard to bridle the tongue, as James tells us in his epistle. And as we saw in verse 5, we must soberly examine the trajectory of our sojourn. And so we will continue that today in verses 6 to 14. So same beginning as those made new in Christ, we must first of all, verses 6 through 10 today, recognize and fight the deceitful, numbing effects of sin. As those made new in Christ, you must recognize and fight the deceitful, numbing effects of sin. Notice that Paul addresses the Ephesian church here at the point of the way they thought. Let's read verses 6 through 10 once more just so that we can get the flow of Paul's thought here. 
Let no one deceive you, Paul says, with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Though this is not exclusively about the way that we think, because Paul does talk about actions here. In these few verses, Paul is addressing how we think, how we look at the world. Those of you who can remember what it was like before your conversion, maybe you were converted as an adult or maybe you just have a really good memory, you remember what it was like to to walk in darkness and, and to enjoy it. And, and it just seemed very natural. It was, it was sort of numbing. And, and it was deceitful. There was like this call within your ears that you could hear toward these paths of sinfulness. And, and it was very alluring. But even still, those of us who perhaps seemingly we're converted from the womb. A lot of us feel like that. If we're being honest, it's still like that, isn't it? Sin is deceitful. I mean, whenever you are, whenever you are tempted by sin, it, it doesn't go like this. Okay, Christian. Okay, saint. We're going to go do this thing now which will displease your creator. Which will trample upon the grace of your crucified and risen Savior. We're going to go dishonor him now. We're going to go do things which are going to harm you. And harm those around you. Let's go. That's not how sin manifests itself. That's not how sin presents itself. Sin is like a shiny thing. Sin is like a, a pleasurable thing. Sin is a thing which, which extends to us the hope of comfort, of satisfaction. And until we get to the point that we can reason our way through it, that in fact it will dishonor our Creator, that in fact will trample upon the grace of our crucified and risen Lord though in fact it will harm us, though in fact very often it harms those around us, until we get to the point that we can reason our way through those filters, we will give in to the deceitful and numbing effects of sin. Still, we don't have to have led all those sort of like model lifestyles of, of really bad sinfulness then be converted as an adult to remember what that's like. We know it probably even in the past few days. Things we do in private, things that we think are hidden from even the most intimate of relationships around us, things that are internal, Things that we, we learn to hide well. Secret lusts. Maybe about a man or a woman, but, but lust isn't just about sex. 
Lust can be other things. Lust for power. A craving after monetary wealth. For significance, for, for respect. My brothers and sisters, my friends, our sin is deep. And we're dealing with deep waters here. Which is why if we are confronted in our 70s with the course of our lives, if someone truly is concerned about the trajectory of our lives, our protest should not be that we can count on two hands all the sins we've ever committed, but, but yes, indeed, we are sinful people. Which is why Paul could say all at the same time, imitate me, and yet I am the foremost of sinners. How can that be? I'm 40 now. I'm around halfway done. I don't want to live too long. I'm not who I once was. There's a lot of things I used to do that I don't do anymore. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not tempted by a lot of the things I used to do. I am. Frankly, I am. Sadly, I am. But I've made progress in a number of areas. And therefore, as as a shepherd in this church, in some ways I hope I can say imitate my lifestyle. And yet, at the same time, there's things about me that, that if you knew in a moment of, of judgment, you might really not like me. Now, if you were being honest about your own heart, you'd probably say join the club. But nevertheless, though there's things I don't do anymore that I once did, there's things about me that I'm recognizing that I didn't used to understand. Growing up in a lifestyle where the worst thing I could ever do was wear shorts and square dance, I later on learned that there were much deeper things within my heart. Pride and greed and lust. And I think that's the way it works. We should be growing in ways that that we are moving beyond things we used to do. The things that characterized us in our teens should not characterize us in our 40s. And yet what happens is the more that we are exposed to the holiness of God, the more we recognize there's deep and dark stuff within us still, and it doesn't do us one bit of good to deny it. And even still, sin, with its alluring call in my ears, offers me things that I want And yet I know it can't deliver on what it promises. And I will say to you very practically that one of the things that I've had to learn to do over the years is work my way through cognitively within my head. And if I'm being honest, sometimes when I'm alone out loud, what I'm facing. And so that little alluring call of sin that I was describing a little while ago, that didn't just come to me in sermon preparation this week. That's what I do. I have to do that. So I try to identify sin for what it is. And, and I will say as a caveat that I fail often, but, but I try to call sin what it is. This alluring call to this thing, whatever it is, 
it won't deliver on its promises. It will dishonor my king. It will bring me eventual misery. It will harm the people around me. And despite how attractive it is, despite how deceitful and numbing the call of the sin is, it will never deliver on its promises. So very often, the battle for righteousness is lost at the point of the way we think, the way we perceive. Don't you remember what we studied together in Ephesians chapter 4? Look at verse 17. The apostle says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And notice verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The battle for practical righteousness is always won or lost at the point of the way that you perceive the world, the point of thinking. Which means that you must be a discerning person. And how do you develop discernment? You develop discernment by knowing the word of God. Let's turn together to Psalm 119. We will obviously not take time to read this entire psalm, but I want to pull out a couple of thoughts. The psalmist says in the beginning of the psalm, blessed are those whose way is blameless. How does that come to pass? They walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. How can, verse 9, a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And this is why Solomon could say, upon reflecting on the instruction that he had received from his father David, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs chapter 1. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. We have a few young people sitting in here today who are not in the back. Your parents want the best for you. Rather than being irritated by their instructions and maybe even by their household made-up rules, maybe you can ask God's Spirit to help you see them as jewelry which adorn your lives, which, which make up the very fabric of your home to protect you from sinful things and to lead you to righteousness. 
for the glory of God, because your Creator deserves it, and for your joy. I want to believe, and I don't know if this is the case, but I want to believe that Solomon wrote Proverbs chapter 1 after he hopefully came out of his walk of darkness, where he enjoyed the the darkness of the world for a long, long, tragic time. I want to believe that, that he came out of that. And upon reflection, he could say, my parents, my my." beloved who taught me were trying to lead me to righteousness for the glory of our covenant God and and for my joy. So as those made new in Christ, we must recognize and fight the deceitful and numbing effects of sin. In fact, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 7, we shouldn't even associate with them. Now, that does raise a question, doesn't it? The question is, How much contact do we have with the world? As we look back at the course of church history, Christians have worked this out in a number of different ways. The first monastics, the first monks, would go build themselves a pillar in the desert and live by themselves without food or water, sometimes going to the extreme of waking up in the morning and wringing the dew from their beards and drinking it so they could persist in life. I don't think that that's a great application of this verse. There are some communities, even from Reformation theology, who to this day have secluded themselves from the world to the point that some don't even want to use electricity and live among others who might defraud them of their simple faith. Most Christians in the modern age would apply this in sort of a way that comes out cliched a bit. We are in the world, but not of the world. We've heard that one a bunch. So the question for most of us who live in sort of that third category, not to the crazy extreme and not to the odd extreme, but to the point that we realize that that we are different, we ask ourselves, how do we apply this? And the truth of the matter is, every family must figure out how they're going to apply it in different ways. This comes out in school choices, and you have freedom to make those school choices. It comes out in choices of of what you do as a family and, and what you don't do. And that might even be different for certain members of your family, some things that you might allow one child to do, you might not allow another child to do because of their proclivities and tendencies. The goal is not perfection in the sense that we expect that it will come to pass. In other words, parents, your children will sin. And don't be surprised because you do. And you should tell them you do. One of the most healthy things that you can do for your children is to help them realize they're not alone. When you see your children lust, tell them you do. When your children are greedy and selfish, tell them the last time you were. Of course, tell them the remedy, but but they should see you repenting. How do we as families work this out? Well, the truth of the matter is we've got to be very careful because we have to see our tendency toward these things. And, And we all have it. 
what might work for my family might not work for yours. Now, I'll give you counsel. I'll tell you perhaps why I came to certain conclusions, and then you might follow that and you might not. But this must be done honestly, not casually. It must be done with a tendency toward righteousness and not unrighteousness. It, it must be done with hearts that want to pursue the glory of God and, and not just treasure the things of the world. I will say this because of what we're going to talk about in just a moment. You can't be totally separate from the world. Whatever your application of verse 7 is, you can't be totally separate from the world. Otherwise, the end of this passage doesn't make any sense. And in fact, I will say just as a little bit of foreshadowing of what we're going to discuss in just a moment, that you have to have some pretty regular contact with the unbelieving world. Otherwise, again, this passage doesn't make any sense. In other words, you must and you should regularly be with unbelieving people. I want to say that again so that I'm not misunderstood. You must and you should regularly be with unbelieving people, those trapped in darkness. But secondarily, and this is just as important, you must not give in to their tendencies. In other words, the basic application of this verse, even though, again, parenthetically, you, you must work this out individually as worshipers and as families, parenthesis closed, the general application of this verse is you must and you should be among unbelievers, but you must not give in to their tendencies. Paul wasn't calling the Ephesian church to an impossible task. Now, he was calling them to a hard task but not an impossible one. And that brings us to the second point, verses 11 through 14. We must and we should be living among unbelievers, but we must reflect the light of Christ to those lost in the darkness. We who, verse 10, are discerning what is pleasing to the Lord through the word, we are to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, herein lies the tension. How can you expose darkness unless you're in the darkness? Now, that scares some of you. Maybe you did grow up in an environment where you did run away from the world. All, all your friends were Christians. All your family, they, they were Christians. Maybe even you moved to a neighborhood where you could only be around Christians. You might think I'm making that up, but some people do that. And you pull your kids away from anybody who's not Christian family. And perhaps you sit here today and as you take stock of, of all your layers of relationships, all the concentric circles of your relationships, you rarely spend time with any unbelievers. How can you then expose the darkness? How can you then, verses 13 and 14, reflect the light of the Savior to those who really don't understand it, let alone want it? You see, one of the difficult things about this text is that we should not only resist sin. I mean, and that in and of itself is like a lifelong battle, right? 
But perhaps what might even be more difficult is that we fight that battle in the midst of the darkness. Not participating in the darkness, but getting into the fray where people use language that you don't like and tell jokes which not only irritate you, but you recoil against. That you live among people, that you are actually friends with people who make lifestyle choices that you hate because your Savior hates them. And yet, you don't just call them acquaintances, but you call them friends. And I draw that implication from this idea. You can't expose darkness in a one-off conversation. If you have a neighbor that lives across the street that you never talk to, except for maybe once a year whenever you're doing mulch, and your neighbor says to you, what have you been doing all winter? That's what we do in Ohio, right? We all like go into our little caves for like four months, and then we come out and we do mulch, and we're like, hey, you're still alive. And they say, hey, what have you been doing the past four months? And they're like, well, you know, I've been raising kids and I'm busy. We, that's what we always say, right? I'm busy. Um, and maybe, you know, at a moment of clarity, we say, well, you know, I've been doing some church stuff because you hope that maybe the conversation can be steered in a certain direction. And your, you know, fellow mulching neighbor's like, oh, that's cool, whatever, you know, I've been doing this. And, and then the conversation ends and then you go on with your summer and you don't even talk to them even though you're both outside and maybe you wave or whatever and you borrow their ladder, but you never talk to them. You're not their friend. I guess what I'm saying to you is I encourage you to have unbelieving friends that, that move beyond the stage of acquaintance to people who actually are dear to you. I doubt, I doubt that you will pray for people with tears if you don't love them. I doubt that you will put up with some frustrating conversations with some uncomfortable circumstances if you don't love a person and want to expose the darkness that still resides within them. What does this mean for you as a family? You have to work this out. But I do encourage you to ask yourself, do I actually have unbelieving friends? Like, people that I would have over for dinner. People that I hang out with regularly people that I love, people that if they took their last breath and have not trusted Jesus, that it would break my heart. Far too many of us conservative Christians who have airtight doctrine, we don't love the lost. And brothers and sisters, I think such cold hearts dishonor the Savior just as much as our lust, just as much as our greed. And so therefore, we are more sinful than we thought, right? Not just sinful in the lifestyle choices we make, but also sinful in the fact that we don't care about evangelism. We don't care about bringing the light to bear into the darkness. And so this means that we are saved for a design. And two ideas of design come out in this passage. First of all, the design of holiness, that we'll be pure and righteous. But also we have been saved for the design of redemption of others. 
We have been designed in such a way that, that we become irreplaceable conduits of grace. Jesus does not save people in a vacuum. He saves people through others who reflect and who proclaim the gospel. We will not take time to turn here, but I do encourage this as, as a bit of a corollary study. In John chapters 8 through 9, in both chapters, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. But you'll notice in John chapters 8 through 9 that he's hanging out with sinners. He's hanging out with self-righteous people, exposing the darkness within them. He's hanging out with a, a sinful man in verse 9 who has not yet turned to Jesus, who has not yet bowed the knee to God, and he heals him of his blindness, and then that man eventually believes on him. The self-righteous Pharisees would not turn from self-righteousness to free grace in a vacuum. This blind man needed to see, not just physically, but, but with the eyes of the heart, to embrace Jesus, the righteous one. And, and he didn't do that in a vacuum. He did that because the gospel came to him, was brought to him. And therefore, we are called to do the same. Turn with me to John chapter 3. You are familiar with the beginning of this short passage, but we neglect to see the context of the end of it. Whether Jesus said these words or John the Apostle did upon reflection, of Jesus' words were not clear, but nevertheless the truth remains the same. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. So this is our faith in Jesus, but, but what happens to those of us who have come to the light? We have the privilege and responsibility of reflecting that light so that others might see. Listen, people are not running to get in these proverbial four walls this morning. How is the light going to get to them? You've got to take it to them, which is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I have the privilege and the responsibility of, of living among unbelievers. And, and I am not the evangelist I want to be. But I'm better than I was. And the deeper I go into friendships with my unbelieving neighbors, the more I love them and the more it breaks my heart that they don't even perceive what the light is. I had a friend call me the other day, um, a good friend I have, 
somebody I do weep over, somebody who I love very much who doesn't know Jesus. He's religious, but he doesn't know Jesus. His son was very sick, and he called me because he didn't have anybody else to talk to. But he knew I'd pray for him, and he knew that I believe in something bigger than money and jobs and nice houses and cars. And then just a couple days later, they were internal family problems, and he talked to me because he didn't have anybody else to talk to. That relationship has taken time. Jesus does save people in one-off conversations, but Jesus generally saves people who've been brought into relationship with people who walk in the light. Because generally speaking, people are not converted through one conversation, but through dozens and dozens and dozens. Where the darkness is recognized for what it is, as eventually unappealing and unsatisfying, and the light is an attractive, beautiful alternative. In fact, the only thing that will lead to happiness in life. But your life must display this. And you must be among people so they can see it. Your life, Ephesians 5, 13, must expose the darkness. And because, verse 14, you as a sleeper, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, were made alive, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, Christ has shone on you, exposing your darkness, the futility of such darkness that would never make you happy. When you give in to that darkness still, when your light is dim, nobody cares. But when your light shines brightly, and your love for Jesus is evident, and there's something different about you, you have the opportunity to proclaim the reason for the hope that lies within you. Which means that you have to be different. Your marriages should be different. The way you raise your kids should be different. The way you get angry or don't get angry should be different. The things you get mad about, the things you care about, the things you don't care about, it should look different than those who walk in darkness. And the brighter your light shines, and the more consistently it shines into the darkness, because you're in the darkness, not participating in the darkness, but you're in the darkness, there will be some, God willing, even many, who will see the light that is reflected through you and say, I want that. Most people, when they sober up, either metaphorically or literally, are not happy. The community in which most of us live, broadly speaking, who don't miss mortgage payments, who get to take vacations, who have all they want and still lots left over, at the end of the day, all that stuff can't satisfy them. The truth of the matter is, we have the responsibility to take the light to them. And by the grace of God and through lots of prayer, and lots of discussions, and through courageous words and courageous living, we have the opportunity and privilege to tell them there is something more. There is real pleasure to be found for the one who is bringing recreation. And the more brightly the light is reflected from you as you are progressively being transformed, you will have opportunity to proclaim the light to them. So by way of application... Because we are prone to wander, we must be careful to collectively, together, all of us, because we are prone to wander, we must be careful to collectively walk in the light, treasuring the scriptures and encouraging holy pursuits. How is our darkness exposed? 
because we are exposed to the word together. And as we learn the truth, we encourage one another toward holy living, holy love. We are to do that together. We, we must not live in isolation. You'll notice in my application over the past number of months as we've been going through Ephesians, there is this corporate dynamic to it. Individual, isolated living is dangerous and foolish and will lead you back to the numbing light. But together, walking together, we treasure what is true. We are learning what is true. The, the word is exposing bad ways of thinking, bad ways of, of craving, and instead we are turned to the light, and then together we pursue holy love. And lastly today, our lives must clarify the hope of the gospel to those lost in darkness. The way we reflect the light of Christ should clarify what is true and right. Our progressive transformation provides a platform to proclaim the good news. Your changed lifestyle won't save anybody. The gospel must be proclaimed. We have this thing that was thought up and labeled lifestyle evangelism over the past few decades. It's right and it's wrong. It's wrong in the sense that, that your kindness and your love is going to save anybody. That's not true. It's wrong in the sense that the gospel must actually be proclaimed, and we'll talk about that very briefly in just a moment. But it's right in the sense that your life must adorn the gospel. Your life gives beauty to the gospel, because, because if you don't look any different than the world around you in the way you spend your money and the way you treat those who you're called to love, who cares? Nobody will be drawn to that. So, yes, live among people in such a way that, that your life gives beauty to the gospel. But as we close today in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, the apostle says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? That is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's, that's what we're called to. Not just to resist our tendency toward personal sinfulness, but likewise in this passage to resist the tendency to, to isolate ourselves from proclaiming through lives and lips the hope that is found in Jesus. So I say to you, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He has done that for most of us. If that has not happened for you, today is the day to trust him. He who gave his life for you was buried and raised in victory over sin and death. He offers you righteousness and eternal life. But because most of us have already trusted Jesus, our crucified and risen Lord, May we live in his light and may we reflect his light through lifestyle and through proclamation to the world around us. For the one who is bringing recreation deserves it and the world needs it. May he grant us grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now transform our minds and transform our hearts for your glory and for our joy and the eternal destiny of those around us in Lewis Center and Powell and Dublin and Delaware and Marion and Westerville and Worthington and Columbus and around the world. 
Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.